0: The text for this morning's sermon is Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, imagine that you got an invitation to Buckingham Palace to visit the Queen, to have a dinner with her, be excited, I think, most of us, and you would get ready and put on your best clothes and show up on time. And imagine you're sitting down at this great big table, this banquet, and people start coming in to serve the food and someone comes up behind you and puts a plate in front of you and you turn and you look and it's, it's Her Majesty. Her Majesty is serving the dinner. You'd be surprised, I think. You'd be shocked. It's not what you would expect. Well, the disciples, upon hearing the words of our text, would have been even more surprised and more shocked. What Jesus says to them here is something totally unexpected and shocking. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and along the way, he's teaching his disciples about the cross. He's going to make the greatest sacrifice imaginable. The cross will be the greatest possible display of self-sacrifice. And it's a cruel incongruity that as he continues to empty himself and humble himself even unto death, the death of the cross, the disciples are focused on self-promotion and exalting themselves and they're arguing about who's going to be the highest as the Savior prepares to be the lowest. Now, there's one thing which is good about their argument. They're arguing about who gets the big high positions in the kingdom of heaven. So that means that they believe that the kingdom is coming. They believe that Jesus is the victorious king. They've got that right that's good. But what they've got wrong is that they think that the kingdom of Jesus is just going to be one more kingdom in a long line of kingdoms stretching from the very beginning of history to today. It's a pyramid in which the greatest power is at the top and in which I serve those above me in the pyramid and am served by those below me. And to get higher, I need to climb over the backs of the people that are above me. I've got to try to dethrone people so I can take their place. Well, Jesus teaches the disciples and us that he did not come just to set up one more kingdom like that, but he came to bring about a radical change. Jesus Christ, in our text, teaches us about servant leadership in the kingdom of heaven. And we'll see, under that theme, three points today. It comes from the king, it is practiced by his ministers, and it transforms his subjects. What Jesus teaches us about servant leadership, it comes from the king. As we begin to read our text even as the Son of Man came not to be served, we stop for a moment on that word, came. Jesus teaches us here that he is eternal. He came from eternity into time. The eternal Son of God, who has always existed, in glory, set aside his glory, as Philippians 2 tells us, humbled himself, became a true man, and humbled himself even unto death. Now this this one who came is the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? If you open up your Bible to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, At verse 13. We read about the Son of Man the Old Testament. Daniel 7:13, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now look, look who the Son of Man is. Look what he is given. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations, peoples, nations, and languages should serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a prophecy about our Lord Jesus Christ. A prophecy of the glory of the Messiah. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And this glorious, powerful, majestic king Eternal king came not to be served says Jesus that's a little bit counterintuitive Jesus is deliberately using this title the son of man because he's the last adam and the great and glorious last adam is humbling himself why because he came to undo the mistake and the sin and the rebellion of the first Adam. The first Adam tried to exalt himself. He was put in the garden to govern over all this earth, over all the things on this earth, all the creatures and all the people, to help them, to serve them, to minister to them so that they could function and live and exist in a way which maximizes the glory of God. That was his job. And in Genesis 2, the scriptures even use that verb. He was put in the garden to serve. But he didn't. He decided that it would be better for him If all things served him and his desires, he tried to dethrone God and make man's will supreme. And in doing so, he turned the whole world upside down. Man became subject to his wife's will, and God's will was put in the second place to man's will. And so if the first Adam plunged this creation into sin and misery, And corruption through his desire to rule, then the last Adam will set things right by going back, by coming, by humbling himself, and by being willing to serve. And that's the character of the work of the Son of Man. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The word here, Is the Greek word which is connected to the word deacon. It's a word which means minister, to attend to the needs of others, to minister to them. Jesus is not saying that he came to be a genie. You know, like in the movie Aladdin or other stories, you've got the little. oil lamp and you, you rub it and a genie appears and he's willing to serve you. Whatever you want, he'll do for you. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that we tell Jesus what to do, that he serves our desires and our interests. But what he is saying is that we do not minister to him, but he ministers to us. And so we learn something in our text about how God relates to us. We need to relearn this all the time, because we get it wrong as human beings very quickly. God doesn't need us. We need God. And we think, well, that's so obvious, isn't it? And yet, in every false religion, and in every false and hurting version of Christianity, those things are turned around. How often do we hear, for instance, people saying, oh, Jesus just really needs you. He really, he wants you. He can't be without you. I was hearing on the radio a few years back an advertisement for a book about the crucifixion. And the announcer said, oh, Jesus was on the cross and he could have come down in a blaze of glory, but he didn't. He stayed on the cross. Now why did he stay there? And then the announcer said, well, because he, he couldn't imagine an eternity without you. And it kind of sounds nice in a way, doesn't it? Jesus just can't live without me. But it gets it all wrong. Because Jesus is God. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anyone. In Psalm 50, God calls his people together and he says, Listen, what's with all this trampling of my court? You're coming with all these rituals and rites and sacrifices as if you think that I need it. If I were hungry, which I'm not, but if I were, I wouldn't tell you. I don't need your bulls and calves and, and sheep and sacrifices. The bulls and the cows on a, on a thousand hills belong to me. In Acts chapter 7, Paul says, God doesn't need us to make him a house to live in. God doesn't need to be cared for by human hands, as if he needs something. He gives life and breath and everything. See, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And from all eternity, he has lived in perfect and holy and and joyful and loving communion with himself. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God doesn't need us. He would be just as perfect and just as good if he had never created the world in the first place. We learn something about false religion as well. Every false religion treats God as if God needed people to take care of Him. You, you remember in the Old Testament, the gods needed the people to carry them around because they couldn't move. When the, when the Philistines' god fell down on His face, He needed the priest to pick Him up and put Him back where He belonged. The ancient pagan priests would put food in front of the gods, little bowls of food so that they would be able to eat, like we put food in front of our dog or our cat, because they need us to take care of them or they get hungry. And nowadays we may not have idols to feed and to carry around, but in our minds and hearts, we can sometimes treat God as if he needed us to take care of him. But he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. Jesus is true God of true God, very God of very God, the Son of Man, totally self-sufficient in Himself. And He says that He came not to be served. He doesn't need us to minister to Him. He doesn't need us to take care of Him. He came to minister to us, to take care of us. I'll give you an example which might help. Think of a baby in the crib, a newborn baby. Of course, a child should honor and obey her parents, but a child is totally dependent on the parents. When the baby wakes up and when the baby cries, it's not because the baby's thinking, hey, how are we going to pay the bills at the end of the month? How am I going to get a better job for dad? How am I going to take care of my mother and what she needs? The baby doesn't wake up and cry because of those things. The baby baby wakes up and cries because it needs its mother. And when in the middle of the night, the mother wakes up, as mothers do, and goes, in that act of self-sacrificial love, goes to the baby's room one more time, the the mother doesn't go to the baby to be served. But she comes to the baby to serve. To minister to the needs of that little child. And we're like little babies. We need God to take care of our needs. You know, the disciples thought, Jesus, you're going to come into your kingdom. You're going to need some, a right-hand man and a left-hand man. You're going to need a, a transition team to get the kingdom going, and, and let's choose who the big, powerful, guys that the movers and the shakers in your kingdom are going to be. We're going to help you, Jesus, to inaugurate your kingdom. And Jesus says, don't be foolish. I didn't come here for you to to help me get into my kingdom. I came to serve you, to minister to you. That's our God. And that's servant leadership in the kingdom. It comes from the king. And 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 therefore, it, it is practiced by his ministers. That comes to the second point here. Well, Like we already said, the the disciples at least had true faith that the kingdom was coming. They're arguing about who's going to be running the show. Like politicians before an election, who's going to get the the juicy uh, positions? They're planning the team, the, the support team that Jesus surely needs. Jesus says, no, that's not the way things are with me. And that is not the way things are going to be with you. You see, if the first Adam turned things upside down, Jesus being the last Adam turned things back the right way. He turns the post-fall power structures on their head. And it's important for us to note that when the Scripture speaks about leaders in the church, the Scriptures often use the word minister or diakonos, where we get our word deacon from. Paul, for, in- for instance, he describes himself in various ways as a, as a minister of the gospel, a minister of the church, a minister of Christ. And that's because Paul and the other apostles and the evangelists and the office bearers in the the early church, they understood that they were servants of Jesus and servants of His bride, the church. And so every minister, every preacher of the gospel, every elder, every deacon, has to understand that, that Jesus, He is the head, He is the highest authority. But he leads and governs his church with a servant leadership. He came not to be served, but to serve. He humbled himself. He washed the feet of his apostles as if he was the most humble slave or domestic servant. That's the way Jesus leads, and that's the way he wants his under-shepherds to lead. That's what he did when he was on earth. That's what he's going to do when we're in heaven. Because when we're in heaven and we sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at that great wedding feast of the Lamb, guess who's going to be serving? Not Queen Elizabeth, but the King of Kings. Luke chapter 12, verse 37, speaks about the Master when he comes back. He will make them sit at the table and he will serve them. Jesus will be serving us at that great wedding feast of the Lamb. And Jesus sets himself up as the example follow. Look at verse 28, our text, even as the Son of Man. He's the example. He's the norm. You know, throughout history, the Christian church has not always gotten this right. Well, let's put it another way. Throughout history, the Christian church has often gotten this very wrong. We know from recent and from more distant past that the Christian church often tends towards hierarchical leadership, where people rise up and begin to think that it's important that they tell other people what to do. We all know, very it comes naturally to us, doesn't it? It's hard to live our own lives, but it's always really easy to live other people's lives and to tell other people if they would just be more like this or just be more like that. And so throughout history, we've had to fight against this horrible, terrible, anti-Christian tendency to see power rising and then oppressing God's people. And to fight against that and to avoid that evil, we need to look to him, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And we need to pray fervently, God, please raise up leaders who reflect the glorious image and character of Christ. Leaders who feed the souls of the flock rather than feeding their own pride and arrogance. We need leaders who lead, pastors who pastor in the power of the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, that same spirit who led Paul to say to the Corinthian church, I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Isn't that awesome? When God gives us under-shepherds like that, preachers and, and elders and deacons, who serve us with the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you pray for your pastor and for your elders and deacons? Have you ever thought about what they do? How many hours they spend in meetings late at night away from their families, their wives and children? How many hours they dedicate to meeting with people in their homes or in coffee shops, counseling and encouraging and Gently correcting, calling sinners away from sin and back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do they do that? They do it because they love Jesus. And they do it because they love you. And so we can praise God for giving us under-shepherds who don't want to be so but who delight to minister to God's flock. When elders come and visit our homes, when elders come and and ask how we're doing, when elders come and, and warn us about the dangers of sin, that's Jesus who's coming to us through them. And Jesus is showing us his love. When the elders and the deacons and the pastor, the the preacher, they, they visit the flock, they pray for the sheep, they pray with the sheep, they instruct the sheep, they admonish the sheep, they correct the sheep with biblical love. When these men of God are faithfully ministering to our spiritual needs, it is the Lord Jesus himself who is in our midst, who is loving us who is caring for us, who is instructing us, correcting us, comforting us, and pastoring us through his chosen servants. You know, perhaps the, the office which most beautifully shows the love of our Savior is the office of the deacon. Sometimes it's kind of the forgotten office in the church. But they come to us in the moment of suffering and affliction and sickness and need. And they come to pray with the sick in the hospital or at home. When they speak words of comfort, they come to find out what our, our needs are, whether spiritual or material. When in the midst of of affliction and tribulation, they encourage us with the word of God, and and they pray with us, and, and even give material help in different ways in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when the deacons are doing their work faithfully, and Jesus is ministering to his flock. Didn't he tell us? In this they will know that you are my disciples, when you love one another. He showed us that love, didn't he? And the, the under-shepherds in the church reflect that love as they minister to us. And if that's the case, we can expect good things to happen. Come to the third point here. Jesus teaches us about servant leadership in the kingdom. It comes from the king. It is practiced by his ministers. And lastly, it transforms his subjects. You see, because Jesus didn't just undo the original sin by humbling himself unto death. He didn't just die to take away sin. That's one part of it. But he also rose to transform our lives, to bring new life to dead sinners. Jesus also came not to just get rid of sin, but to get rid of the consequences of sin. He came to translate us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light to take us out of death and into life, to take us out of a a life of hate and into a life of love. He came to transform each one of us from selfish sinners into loving children of God. What does he say? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, theologians have written entire books just on that word ransom. We're not going to get into all the details right now. But this is what we want to focus on. A ransom is something that is paid to rescue someone who is imprisoned or enslaved. That's what a ransom is. And that's significant that Jesus uses this word. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Who are those many? That's us. All of God's children. And what is this ransom necessary for? Well, if a ransom is paid, that means that that many were prisoners or slaves. And the question is, where were we imprisoned and how were we enslaved? And the fact is, is that outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, every man, woman, and children is enslaved to sin, in thrall to the devil and the kingdom of darkness. People outside of Christ think they are free, and the devil doesn't mind that if they think they're free, but they're actually imprisoned in a cage of their own selfish, sinful Desires. The sinner thinks that this is a very good thing. The sinner thinks that to be enslaved and to be caged in and imprisoned by his own sinful desires is freedom and is life. But Jesus comes to foolish, ignorant sinners like us. And he opens the cell door. And he calls us out of that repressed, tiny, oppressive life, which is no life at all. That's the good news. Jesus has opened the door. We don't have to stay. We're free to go. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Well, you know... There's literature on the subject that people who have been enslaved and who are later freed sometimes have a very difficult time getting used to freedom. Someone that's spent many decades in jail, for instance, and suddenly is on the street a free man. Sometimes you read about them committing some crime so they can get back into jail because that's where they feel safe, and that's what they're used to. How are you Living the freedom for which Christ has set you free. The scripture says, if the sun sets us free, we are free indeed. So how is that working out for you? What does it look like? You see, if that cage is open, that door is open, and we look at Jesus, then things are good. But if we turn away from Jesus, what do we see? We see bars all around us. Everyone is a slave. You're either a slave to sin and to the devil, or you are a slave of Christ, a servant of Christ. Are you caged in by the desires of your old nature, by impure thoughts, by late at night checking out all the bad places on the internet, cultivating an inappropriate relationship at work? Are you caged in by anger and resentment, by greed and materialism, by ingratitude? Sometimes you have Christians that know the Bible back to front and memorize the confessions, and they're always grumpy, always complaining. They don't seem to be free and alive in Christ? Are you caged in by addiction of some type, whether it's drugs or or alcohol or, or sex or something else? You know, when we turn our eyes away from Jesus, we just see those bars of sin and they're crowding us in, they're caging us in, they're oppressing us. But the scriptures just call us time and time again, look to Jesus. Because Jesus, when we look to him, there are no bars. He's opened the door. He's ransomed us from all the power of sin and the devil. He's paid the price. He's set us free. Sin no longer has dominion over us. And if you're trying to fight your sins and temptations, know this, you will never win. Because only Jesus is powerful enough to change you you want to fight your sin and temptation, look to him and say, Lord Jesus, work in me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change the desires of my heart so I don't even want to look at sin again. So it's just not attractive to me anymore. When Jesus comes to us with the power of his word and spirit, and he gives his grace and his Holy Spirit to those who fervently ask him, then he changes us so that we are no longer servants of sin, but we are set free to serve and to love him. That's why Jesus died. to set us free, to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me end with a short story. It was in the 19th century in the highlands of Scotland, and a young shepherd boy was taking care of his flock. And over the valley close by to where he was, a a train bridge crossed that deep valley. And he knew that every morning a train full of passengers would come across that bridge. There was a, Great big storm at night and and the storm damaged that bridge and and the the, the trestles were were kind of leaning over and if a train would cross that bridge, it would fall into the abyss and everybody would die. So the shepherd boy left his sheep and he went running up the hill to the track and went running along the track because he wanted to stop the train in time. And there came the train and he was waving and signaling and telling it to stop and the engineers thought, well, that's some shepherd boy waving at us so they waved back and they didn't get what he was trying to tell them because the, the bridge was just around the corner of the mountain. And finally, he, he realized that this train wasn't going to stop. People were going to die. There was only one way he could stop it. He threw himself onto the tracks. And the engineers put on the brakes with all their might, but the, the train couldn't stop in time went right over that little body, and as it kind of came to a stop, it stopped right on the edge of the abyss, and the passengers got out and looked at each other and looked at that mangled body, and they said he gave his life to save ours." Now what do you think they would do now? Do you think they would all hop back on the train and keep going? Would that be a smart thing to do, children, to jump right back on that train and keep going? It would be kind of dumb. The Lord Jesus, looking upon us in our sin and misery, as we traveled along the tracks of our selfish and sinful lives, he has thrown himself across those tracks. He has died to stop us from falling into the abyss. And now what are you going to do about it? You're going to get right back in that train and keep going? Jesus gave his life to free us from a spirit of selfishness and self-interest and self-promotion and self-exaltation. Jesus gave his life to give us Christ-like servant leaders, a minister, a pastor, a preacher, elders, and deacons. Jesus gave his life to fill us with his own spirit of serving love. So we need to pray, O oh Lord Jesus, pour out your Holy Spirit. Pour out your love into our hearts and make us like you. Make us delight to serve others and not ourselves. To serve our brothers and sisters in the church. To serve people in the neighborhood and in the community and in the city in which you've placed us. Oh Holy Spirit, make us like Jesus. And you know what he does? He answers that prayer. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? 2 Corinthians three eighteen. But we, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's what's happening. Every time you read the Bible, every time you study the scriptures, every time you use the means of grace, Every time you gather in church, the Holy Spirit works mightily through the Word to make us more and more like Jesus. Like the Son of Man, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's praise God by responding with him twenty three, stanzas four, five, and six.